way home. There's nothing to fight for. There's no more honor. Come to think of it, the only honorable thing to do is quiet. It's Yana Ellard from the Jack Swipe Collective here, and I'm back. I'm back for the first time since, um, just looking at the back end of the podcast section here, April 8th, 2020 was the last day that I released an episode, and um, it's just been interesting few months, I'm sure, for everyone. Um, that's, that's for damn sure. Um, but tonight, for some reason, it's... Um, today is the 30th of May. Um, tonight felt like a good reason um, or a good time to hop back on the podcast and do some more reading. So, uh, yeah, to any of you who listened to any of one through six of the first Let's Read, um, just again, a personal thank you to all of you. It's been really, really cool to see that, you know, although incredibly niche, some people out there are actually genuinely interested in something as crazy as some random dude in Canada reading a book out loud on a podcast. Um, But yeah, I think that's really, really cool. So I'm here to do it again. I'm here to do it again after having done it once and listened back to the majority of it and has had a little bit of time to reflect and think about uh, how to maybe make it a little bit better and how I want this to maybe evolve over time. So Thank you to all of you who listened in the past. Also, thank you to everyone who puts up with the fact that this is an incredibly inconsistent podcast in terms of release dates. Um, that's just the way it is. And I, you know, that's just one of the things about um, personal projects is you try and prioritize them as much as possible, but sometimes they fall off the rails where sometimes you're super committed. And so um, this re- works really well for me where I can just run through a book and then rest for a month or two and then run through another book. Um, So anyways, now to anyone who's listening who maybe has listened to the Jacksway Collective regular feed or has never listened to the podcast at all, um, I'll just talk a little bit about the format and what I've done thus far. And then you guys are just going to know. And I'll repeat it again every episode. But basically, I'm here because I, for some reason, like to talk and read out loud. And I've been meaning to do a personal project Uh, that has something to do with audio and so what I did was I read through each chapter of Albert Camus' The Fall on the Microphone um, and then basically had a short discussion in real time um, just me thinking out loud about what I just read and this is a way for me to air out my own thoughts but also share what I think are great works with you guys so same format here for the most part I'm going to talk on the mic for a little bit just preamble then I'm going to read out loud from a book in a kind of very similar to an audiobook format just very no frills and then I'm going to talk about what we just read so the book today is going to be by another one of my favorite authors his name is Milan Kundera um, I think that this is uh, <laughs> it's funny this is a project about me basically sharing my favorite books. And so I get to tell you a little bit about who these people are and, 
you know, why I, for some reason, connect with them and why I love their work. So I'll just talk a little bit about Milan Kundera. He, um, the first book that I read of his, I'm sure most people's introduction to him is through this book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. I read it in college. Um, this is a book basically about, I mean, it's about a lot of things. It's about love. It's about connection. It's about the miscommunication between people who truly care about each other or the miscommunication between men and women. Um, it's about living light and agile and on your feet versus uh, living very heavy and grounded and the tensions between these two things. Um, and it's also got this beautiful backdrop. I say beautiful in a very absurd kind of way, but it's got a beautiful backdrop of being written um, during the Prague Spring, which is basically when uh, Soviets were occupying um, Czechoslovakia. So there's this era of communist goings on that's in the background and it's just so fascinating to me and this is a kind of a through line through many of Kundera's works and for some reason they really connect with me um, because it's, I don't know, perhaps because I live in such a free, relaxed um, Canadian place in Vancouver, um, it's very interesting for me to read about something that is just so absurd to me. The normal goings on of goings ons of daily life in the sixties and seventies, and but also under t- communist occupation, just it's totally inconceivable to me. So, anyways, I won't ramble about him too much. Um, he's a great author. If you enjoy this book, this is the shortest book I've read of his. It's called Slowness. Um, feel free to give his work a shot. Um, unbearable lightness of being is also great, but for now, let's continue and we can go through. Um, this book slowness and I think to just finally mention here like this is kind of an appropriate book I think where you know probably many of our lives have significantly slowed down all of a sudden and we've had a little bit more time to um, take our time with with many different things and so I thought it might be a bit of an appropriate book Um, and also hopefully a little bit easier to read the the fall was quite complex and wordy and difficult I imagine to follow with just audio. So I think that this book will be, it'll lend itself a little bit more to just walking and listening to audio as opposed to the fall where if you, it's really, really tough if you don't have the book in front of you, as I'm sure many of you guys uh, realized. So um, if you guys are ready for this, I'm just going to hop right in and yeah, very similar to last time. So I just want to say thank you again for anyone who's listened and who's tuning in again this is really exciting and i'm just excited to share another amazing incredible book with you so uh, let's do this We suddenly had the urge to spend the evening and night in a chateau. Many of them in France have become hotels. A square of greenery lost in a stretch of ugliness without greenery. A little plot of walks, trees, birds, in the midst of vast network of highways. I am driving, and in the rearview mirror I notice a car behind me. The small left light is blinking, and the whole car emits a wave of impatience. The driver is watching for the chance to pass me. 
He is watching for the moment the way a hawk watches for a sparrow. Vera, my wife, says to me, Every 50 minutes, somebody dies on the road in France. Look at them, all these madmen tearing along around us. These are the same people who manage to be so terrifically cautious when an old lady is getting robbed in front of them on the street. How come they have no fear when they're behind the wheel? What could I say? Maybe this. The man hunched over his motorcycle can focus only on the present instant on his flight. He is caught in a fragment of time, cut off from both the past and the future. He is wrenched from the continuity of time. He is outside of time. In other words, he is in a state of ecstasy. In that state, he is unaware of his age, his wife, his children, his worries, and so he has no fear. Because the source of fear is in the future. And a person freed of the future has nothing to fear. Speed is the form of ecstasy the technical revolution has bestowed on man. As opposed to a motorcyclist, the runner is always present in his body, forever required to think about his blisters, his exhaustion. When he runs, he feels his weight, his age, more conscious than ever of himself and of the time of his life. This all changes when man delegates the faculty of speed to a machine. From then on, his own body is outside the process, and he gives over to a speed that is non-corporeal, non-material, pure speed, speed itself, ecstasy speed. A curious alliance, the cold impersonality of technology with the flames of ecstasy. I recall an American woman from 30 years ago with her stern committed style, a kind of apartheid of eroticism who gave me a lecture, chillingly theoretical, on sexual liberation. The word that came up most often in her tongue or in her talk was orgasm. I counted 43 times. The religion of orgasm Utilitarianism projected into sex life, efficiency versus indolence, coition reduced to an obsolete, to an obstacle to be got past as quickly as possible in order to reach an ecstatic explosion, the only true goal of lovemaking and of the universe. Why has the pleasure of slowness disappeared? Ah, where have they gone, the amblers of yesteryear? Where have they gone? those loafing heroes of folk song, those vagabonds who roam from one mill to another and bed down under the stars? Have they vanished along with footpaths, with grasslands and clearings, with nature? There is a Czech proverb that describes their easy indolence by a metaphor. They are gazing at God's windows. A person gazing at God's windows is not bored. He is happy. In our world, indolence has turned into having nothing to do which is a completely different thing. A person with nothing to do is frustrated, bored, is constantly searching for the activity he lacks. I check the rearview mirror, still the same car, unable to pass me because of the oncoming traffic. Besides the driver sits a woman. Why doesn't the man tell her something funny? Why doesn't he put her hand on her knee? Instead, he's cursing the driver ahead of him for not going fast enough. And it doesn't occur to the woman either to touch the driver with her hand. Mentally, she's at the wheel with him, and she's cursing me too. And I think of another journey from Paris out to a country chateau, which took place more than 200 years ago. A journey of Madame de T and the young Chevalier who went with her. It is the first time they are so close to each other, and the inexpressible atmosphere of sensuality around them springs from the very slowness of the rhythm rocked by the motion of the carriage, 
the two bodies touch. First inadvertently, then inadvertently, the story begins. This is what Vivon Dendon's novella tells. A gentleman of 20 goes to the theater one evening. Neither his name nor his title is mentioned, but I imagine him a chevalier. In the next box, he sees a lady. The novella gives only her initial, Madame de T. She is a friend of the Comtesse, whose lover is the Chevalier. She requests that he see her home after the performance. Surprised by this unequivocal move, and the more disconcerted because he knows Madame de T.'s favorite, a certain Marquis, we never learn his name, we have entered the world of secrecy, where there are no names, the mystified Chevalier finds himself in the carriage beside the lovely lady. After a smooth and pleasant journey, the coach draws to a stop in the countryside, at the chateau's front steps, where Madame de T.'s husband greets them sullenly. The three of them dine in a grim, taciturn atmosphere. Then the husband excuses himself and leaves the two alone. Then begins their night, a night shaped like a triptych, a night as an excursion in three stages. First, they walk in the park. Next, they make love in a pavilion. Last, they continue the lovemaking in a secret chamber of the chateau. At daybreak, they separate. Unable to find his room in the maze of corridors, the chevalier returns to the park, where, to his astonishment, he encounters the Marquis, the very man he knows to be Madame de T.'s lover. The Marquis, who has just arrived at the chateau, greets him cheerfully and tells him the reason for the mysterious invitation. Madame de T. needed a screen so that he, the Marquis, would remain unsuspected by the husband. Delighted that the ruse has worked, he taunts the chevalier, who was made to carry out the highly ridiculous mission of fake lover. Exhausted from the night of love, the young man leaves for Paris in the small chaise provided by the grateful Marquis. Entitled Pont de le Mendin, No Tomorrow, the novella was published for the first time in 1777. The author's name was supplanted, since we are in the world of secrecy, by six enigmatic letters, M, D, G, O, D, R, which, if so inclined, one might read as M. Denon, Gentilhomme Ordinaire du Roi, Monsieur Denon, Gentleman in Waiting to the King. Then, in a very small printing and completely anonymous, it was published again in, 19, in 1779, and it reappeared the following year under the name of another writer. Further editions appeared in 1802 and in 1812, still without the true author's name. After a half-century of neglect, it appeared again in 1866. Since then, it was credited to Vivant Denon, and over the century, its reputation has grown steadily. Today, it figures among the literary works that seems best to represent the art and the spirit of the 18th century. In everyday language, the term hedonism denotes an amoral tendency to a life of sensuality, if not outright vice. This is inaccurate, of course. Epicurus, Epicurus, the first great theoretician of pleasure, had a highly skeptical understanding of the happy life. Pleasure is the absence of suffering. Suffering, then, is the fundamental notion of hedonism. One is happy to the degree that one can avoid suffering, and since pleasures often bring more unhappiness than happiness, Epicurus advises only such pleasures are as prudent and modest. Epicurean wisdom has a melancholy backdrop, flung into the world's m misery. Man sees that the only clear and reliable value is the pleasure, however paltry, 
that he can feel for himself. A gulp of cool water, a look at the sky, at God's windows, a caress. Modest or not, pleasures belong only to the person who experiences them, and a philosopher could justifiably criticize hedonism for its grounding in the self. Yet as I see it, the Achilles heel of hedonism is not that it is self-centered, but that it is, ah, would that I were be mistaken, hopelessly utopian. In fact, I doubt that the hedonist ideal could ever be achieved. I'm afraid the sort of life it advocates for us may not be compatible with human nature. The art of the 18th century drew pleasures out from the fog of moral prohibitions. It brought about the frame of mind we call libertine, which beams from the paintings of Fragonard and Watteau from the pages of Sade, Crebellion the Younger, or Charles Duclos. It is why my young friend Vincent endures that century and why, if he could, he would wear the Marquis de Sade's profile as a badge on his lapel. I share his admiration, but I add, without being really heard, that the true greatness of that art consists not in some propaganda or other for hedonism, but in, it, in its analysis. That is the reason I consider Les Liaisons Dangerous by Charlotte de Laclos to be one of the greatest novels of all time. Its characters are concerned only with the conquest of pleasure. Nonetheless, little by little, the reader comes to see that it is less the pleasure than the conquest that attracts them. That it is not the desire for pleasure, but the desire for victory that is calling the tune. That what first appears to be a merrily obscene game shifts imperceptibly and ineluctably into a life-and-death struggle. But what does struggle have to do with hedonism? Epicurus wrote, The wise man seeks no activity related to struggle. The epistolary form of li liaison dangerous is not merely a technical procedure that could easily be replaced by another. The form is eloquent in itself, and it tells us that whatever the characters have undergone, they have undergone for the sake of telling about it, for transmitting, communicating, confessing, writing it. In such a world, where everything gets told, the weapon that is both most readily available and most deadly is disclosure. Valmont, the novel's hero, sends the woman he has seduced a farewell letter that will destroy her. And it is his lady friend, the Marquise de Mertul, who dictated it to him, word for word. Later, at a vengeance, the Mertul woman shows a confidential letter of Valmont's to his rival. The latter challenges him to a duel, and Valmont dies. After his death, the intimate correspondence between him and Mertul will be disclosed, and the Marquise will end her days scorned, hounded, and banished. Nothing in this novel stays a secret exclusive to two persons. Everyone seems to live inside an enormous resonating seashell where every whispered word reverberates, swells into multiple and unending echoes. When I was small, people would tell me that if I shell against my ear, if I set a shell against my ear, I would hear the immemorial murmur of the sea. In that same way, every word pronounced in the Laclosian world goes on being heard forever. Is that what it is, the 18th century? Is that the famous paradise of pleasure? Or has mankind always lived in such resonating shell without realizing it? Whatever the case, a resonating seashell, that's not the world of Epicurus, who commanded his disciplines. You shall live hidden. The man at the hotel reception desk is nice. Nicer than people usually are at reception desks. 
Recalling that we were here two years ago, he warns us that many things have changed since then. They have developed a conference room for various kinds of meetings and built a fine swimming pool. Curious to see the pool, we cross a very bright lobby with very great windows looking onto the park. At the far end of the lobby, a broad staircase leads down to the pool, large, tiled, with a glass roof. Vera reminds me, last time, there was a little garden rose here. We settle into our room and then go out into the park. The green terrace lawns descend towards the river, the Sienne. It's beautiful. We are enchanted. We decide to take a long walk. A few minutes along our way, there suddenly looms a highway with speeding cars. We turn back. The dinner is excellent. Everyone nicely dressed as if to honor the time goes by, whose memory hovers beneath the ceiling here. Besides us are seated a couple with their two children. One of these is singing loudly. The waiter leans over their table with a tray. The mother stares insistently at him, trying to get him to see, say something flattering about the child, who, full of himself from being looked at, stands up on his chair and sings still louder. A smile of pleasure appears on the father's face. A magnificent Bordeaux, duck, dessert, a house secret. Vera and I chat, contented and carefree. Then, back in our room, I turn on the television for a moment. There are more children. This time, they are black and dying. Our stay in the chateau coincides with the period when, every day for weeks, they showed the children of an African nation whose name is already forgotten. All this happened a good two or three years ago. How could anyone remember all those names? Ravaged by a civil war and famine, the children are thin, exhausted, without the strength to wave away the flies walking about on their faces. Vera says to me, Aren't there any old people dying in that country as well? No, no. What was so interesting about that famine, what made it unique among the millions of famines that have occurred on this earth, was that it cut down only children. We never saw an adult suffering on the screen, even though we watched the news every day, precisely to confirm that unprecedented phenomena. So it was completely natural that not adults but children should revolt against that cruelty of their elders and, with all the characteristic spontaneity of children, should launch the renowned campaign, The Children of Europe Send Rice for the Children of Somalia. Somalia, of course. That famous slogan has brought the vanished name back to me. Ah, what a pity the whole business is already forgotten. They bought bags of rice, an infinite number of bags. The parents were impressed by the sentiment of planetary solidarity in their little ones, and they gave money, and all the institution pitched in, rice was collected in the schools, hauled to the ports, loaded onto the ships headed for Africa, and everyone could follow the glorious rice epic. Immediately after the dying children, the screen is invaded by little girls six and eight years old. They are dressed like adults and have the appealing manner of aging flirts. Oh, it's so cute, so touching, so funny, when children act like the adults the little girls and boys kiss on the mouth, then comes a man holding an infant in his arms, and as he is explaining the best way to wash the diapers his baby is just soiled, a beautiful woman approaches, opens her mouth, and sticks out a terrifically sexy tongue, which then penetrates the terrifically good-natured mouth of the baby-carrying fellow. Bedtime, says Vera, and she turns off the television. The French children rushing to help their little African friends always remind me of the face of the intellectual Beric. These were his glory days. As is often the case with glory, his was instigated by defeat. Let's remember, in the 80s of our century, the world was struck by the epidemic of a disease called AIDS, which was transmitted during sexual contact in which, early on, rampaged mainly among homosexuals. 
to stand up against the fanatics who saw the epidemic as a divine, rightful punishment and avoided the sick as if they carried the plague, tolerant natures expressed brotherhood and took pains to demonstrate that there was no longer danger from their company. Thus it came about that the Duberks of the National Assembly and the intellectual Berk had lunch in a famous Paris restaurant with a group of people with AIDS. The meal proceeded in fine spirits, and, not to miss an opportunity for setting a good example, Deputy de Berks had invited the cameras to come in at dessert time. The moment they appeared on the threshold, he rose, approached one of the sick men, raised him up from his chair, and kissed him on the mouth, which was still full of chocolate mousse. Berk was caught short. He understood immediately that once it was photographed and filmed, Duberk's great kiss would become immortal. He stood up and thought hard whether he too should go and kiss an AIDS person. In the first phase of his thinking, he rejected that temptation because deep inside he was not entirely sure that contact with the sick mouth was not infectious. In the next phase, he decided to surmount his caution, figuring that the shot of his kiss would be worth the risk. But in the third phase, an idea stopped him in the course, in his course towards the seropositive mouth. If he kissed a sick man too, that would not make him Duberk's match. Quite the opposite. He would be reduced to the level of a copycat, a follower, a minion even, who by this hasty imitation would add still greater luster to the other man's glory. So he settled for staying put and smiling insanely. But those few seconds of hesitation cost him dearly, because the camera was there and, on the nightly news, the whole of France read on his face the three phases of his uncertainty and snickered. Thus, the children collecting bags of rice for Somalia came to his rescue at exactly the right moment. He took every opportunity to pelt the public with the fine dictum, only the ch children are living in truth, then took off for Africa and got himself photographed alongside a little dying black girl whose face was covered with flies. The photo became famous the world over, much more famous than the one of Duberk's kissing an AIDS patient, because a dying child counts more than a dying adult, an obvious fact that at the time still escaped Duberk's. But the man did not consider himself beaten, and a few days later he appeared on television, a practicing Christian, he knew Berk to be an atheist, which gave him the idea of bringing along a candle, a weapon before which even the most obdurate unbelievers bow their heads. During the interview, he pulled it from his pocket and lit it, with the perfidious purpose of casting discredit on Berk's concern for exotic lands. He talked about our own poor children, in our villages, in our outer suburbs, and invited his fellow citizens to come down to the street, each carrying a candle, for a grand march through Paris as a sign of solidarity with the suffering children. Then, suppressing his mirth, he issued a specific invitation to Berk to come join him at the head of the procession. Berk had a choice. Either participate in the march, carrying a candle, as if you were de, de Berk's choir boy, or else dodge it and risk the blame. It was a snare he had to escape by some bold and unexpected act. He decided to fly off straight away to an Asian country where the people were in revolt, and there shout out loud and clear his support for the oppressed. Alas, geography was never his strong suit. For him, the world divided into France and not France. With its obscure provinces, he always mixed up, so he stepped off the plane in some other tiresomely peaceful country whose mountain airport was frozen and underserviced. He had to stay there eight days waiting for a plane to take him home, famished and flu-ridden, to Paris. Berk is the martyr king of the dancers, commanded Pontevin. The dancer concept is known only to a small circle of Pontevin's friends. It is his great invention, and perhaps regrettably, he never developed it into a book or made it a subject for internal 
for international symposia. But he doesn't care about public renown, for which reason his friends listen to him with all the greater amused attention. As politicians nowadays, Pontevin says, all politicians nowadays, Pontevin says, have a bit of the dancer in them, and all the dancers are involved in politics, which however should not lead us to mistake one for the other. The dancer differs the dancer differs from the politician in that he seeks not power but glory. His desire is not to impose this or that on the social scheme on the world, he couldn't care less about that, but to take over the stage so as if to beam forth his self. Taking over the stage requires keeping other people off of it, which supposes special battle tactics. The battle the dancer fights, Pontevin calls moral judo. The dancer throws down the gauntlet to the whole world, who can appear more moral, more courageous, more decent, more sincere, more self-sacrificing, more truthful than he. And he utilizes every hole that lets him put the other person in a morally inferior situation. If a dancer does get the opportunity to enter the political game, he will surely refuse all secret deals, which have always been playing the field of real politics, while denouncing them as deceitful, dishonest, hypocritical, dirty. He will lay out his own proposals publicly upon a up on a platform, singing and dancing, and will call on the others by name to do the same. I stress, not quietly, which would give the other person time to consider to discuss counterproposals, but publicly, and if possible by surprise. Are you prepared right now, as I am, to give up your April salary for the sake of the children of Somalia? Taken by surprise, people have only two choices. Either refuse and discredit themselves as enemies of children, or else say yes, with terrific uneasiness, which the camera is sure to display maliciously. The way it displayed poor Barrick's hesitation at the close of the lunch for the people with AIDS. Why are you silent, Dr. H, while human rights are being trampled in your country? Dr. H was asked that question at a moment in the midst of operating on a patient when he could not respond. But when he had stitched up the open belly, he was overcome by such shame for his silence that he blurted forth everything one could want to hear from him and then some after which the dancer who had harangued him, and here's another grip in moral judo, specifically a powerful one, snapped. Finally, even if it does come a little late. Situations can arise, under dictatorships for instance, where it is dangerous to take a public position, for the dancer is a little less dangerous than for others, because having stepped into the spotlight, visible from all angles, he is protected by the world's attention. But he has his autonomy anonymous admirers who respond to his splendid yet thoughtless exhortation by signing petitions, attending forbidden meetings, demonstrating in the streets. Those people will tr be treated ruthlessly, and the dancer will never, will never yield to the sentimental temptation to blame himself for having brought trouble on them, knowing that a noble cause counts for more than this or that individual. Vincent raises, raises an objection to Pontevin. Everyone knows you loathe Berk, and we're with you on that. Still, even if he is a jackass, he supported causes we consider good ones ourselves, or, if you insist, his vanity has supported them. And I ask you, if you want to step into some public dispute, call attention to some horror, help someone being persecuted, how can you do it nowadays without being or looking like a dancer? To which the mysterious Pontevin replies, you're wrong if you think I meant to attack dancers. I defend them. Anyone who dislikes dancers and wants to deintegrate them or denigrate them is always going to come up against an insuperable obstacle, their decency. 
Because with his constant exposure to the public, the dancer condemns, condemns himself to being irreproachable. He hasn't made a pact with the devil like Faust. He's made one with the angel. He seems to make his life a work of art, and that's the job the angel helps him with. Because don't forget, dancing is an art. That obsession with seeing his own life as containing the stuff of art is where you find the true essence of the dancer. He doesn't preach morality, he dances it. He hopes to move and dazzle the world with the beauty of his life. He is in love with his wife, with his life the way a sculptor might be in love with the statue he is carving. I wonder why Pontevin does not make his very interesting ideas public. After all, he doesn't got such a lot to do. This PhD historian sitting bored in his office at the Bibliothèque Nationale, he doesn't care about making his theories known. That's an understatement. He detests the idea. A person who makes his ideas public does risk persuading others of his viewpoint, influencing them, and thus winding up in the role of those who aspire to change the world. Change the world? In Pontevin's view, what a monstrous goal. Not because the world is so admirable as it is, but because any change leads inevitably to something worse. And because, from a more selfish standpoint, any idea made public will sooner or later turn on its author and confiscate the pleasure he got from thinking it. For Pontevin is one of the great disciples of Epicurus. He invents and develops his ideas simply because it gives him pleasure. He does not despise mankind, which is for him an inexhaustible source of merely, merely malicious reflections, but he feels not the faintest desire to come in too close contact with it. He is surrounded by a gang of cronies who get together at the Café Gascon, and this little sample of mankind is enough for him. Of those cronies, Vincent is the most innocent and the most touching. I like him, and my only reproach, tinged with envy, it is true, is for the childlike and to my mind excessive adoration he devotes to Pontevin. But even that friendship has something touching about it, because they discuss a lot of subjects that captivate him. Philosophy, politics, books. Vincent is happy to be alone with Pontevin. Vincent brims over with odd provocative ideas, and Pontevin, who is captivated too, straightens out his disciple, inspires him, encourages him. But all it takes is a third person turning up for Vincent to become um, unhappy because Pontevin changes instantly. He talks louder and becomes entertaining. Too entertaining for Vincent's tastes. For instance, they are by themselves in the cafe and Vincent asks, what do you really think about what's going on in Somalia? Patiently, Pontevin gives him a whole lecture on Africa. Vincent raises objections, they argue, Maybe they joke around as well, but not trying to be clever, just to allow themselves a little levity within a conversation of the utmost seriousness. Then in comes Machu with a beautiful stranger. Vincent tries to go on with the discussion. But tell me, Pontevin, don't you think you're making a mistake to claim that? And he develops an interesting polemic opposing his friend's theories. Pontevin takes a long pause. He is the master of long pauses. He knows that only timid people fear them, and that when they don't know what to say, they rush into embarrassing remarks that make them look ridiculous. Pontevin knows how to keep us still so magisterially that the very milky way, impressed by his silence, eagerly awaits his reply. Without a word, he looks at Vincent, who, for no reason, shyly lowers his eyes. Then, smiling, he looks at the woman and turns again to Vincent, his eyes heavy with feigned solicitude. You're insisting in a woman's presence upon such excessively clever notions indicates a disturbing drop in your libido.
Machu's face takes on its famous idiot grin. The lovely lady passes a condescending and amused glance over Vincent, and Vincent turns bright red. He feels wounded. A friend who a minute ago was full of consideration for him is suddenly willing to plunge him into a discomfort for the sole purpose of impressing a woman. Then other friends come in, sit down, chatter. Machu tells some stories with a few dry little remarks. Gujar displays his bookish erudition. There's the sound of women's laughter. Pontevin keeps silent. He waits. When he has let his silence ripen sufficiently, he says, My girlfriend keeps wanting me to get rough with her. My God, he certainly knows how to put things. Even the people at the table nearly fall quiet and are listening to him. Laughter quivers, eager in the air. What is so funny about the fact that his girl wants him to get rough with her? It must all lie in the magic of his voice, and Vincent cannot help but feel jealous, given that, compared with Pontevin's, his own voice is like a flimsy fife straining to compete with the cello. Pontevin speaks softly, never forcing his voice, which nonetheless fills the whole room and makes inaudible the other sounds of the world. He goes on, Get rough with her, but I can't do it. I'm not rough. I'm too nice. The laughter still quivers in the air, and to relish that quiver, Pontevin pauses. Then he says, From time to time, a young typist comes to my house. One day, during dictation, full of goodwill, I suddenly grab her by the hair, lift her out of her seat, and pull her over to the bed. Halfway there, I let her go and burst out laughing. Oh, what a dumb lug I am. You're not the one who wanted me to get rough. Oh, excuse me, please, mademoiselle. The whole cafe laughs, even Vincent, who is back in love with his teacher. That was actually chapter one through seven for uh, Slowness by Milan Kundera. It's not as clean for a podcast as The Fall, which just has six chapters for six episodes. So I'm just going to kind of um, estimate with this to hopefully have this be five or six episodes. So I hope that was a little bit easier to maybe follow in an audio form compared to The Fall. Again, my apologies for some terrible, terrible French and name pronunciation. There's really nothing I can do about that. Um, Maybe it will get better, or at least I'll get consistent with my incorrect pronunciations. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think I'll just dive right in, in terms of um, this first chapter. Um, Again, it kind of comes into the middle of things, similar to the fall, where there's a bunch of different angles happening. We're not really given context. We're not really given a proper preamble or introduction it's just hey here's a bunch of stuff and one of the things that I think Kundera does and I think I am initially attracted to his work because of this is that he dances back and forth between so many different perspectives and so many different um, points of view and what and I mean like narrative points of view now he has um I believe three in this first section where he has the main character who is driving on the highway with his wife and is checking into a hotel in Paris. And that's kind of the grounded real time story to set the, the book into an era, which is, um, I guess late nineties, um, maybe early nineties. 
And then we have this second very fictional example of the Marquise and the, um, this fictional book from the 1800s. This is significant that he mentions it here because this is a through line that's going to come back later. These characters of the Chevalier um, and Madame T. And then um, back at the Paris like grounded section, we have him remembering different anecdotes about other people in his life, like Berk and Pontevin. But again, that's remaining on this like very grounded storyline. But then also you have occasionally he does this a lot in the unbearable lightness of being, where like Kandera kind of comes in as well and he kind of chimes in as almost like this omniscient narrating god occasionally will come into the chapter and be like, hey, let me just add my two cents here. And that's really, really fascinating. So this is something you're just going to get used to, I think, as we go through the story, but it definitely hops all over the place between these different storylines. And um, but they all kind of interwove and parallel each other. Now, one very interesting and creative way where they parallel each other is uh, we start the book and our main storyline are these people driving on the highway. And of course, like the book is called Slowness, and we start on a highway, of course, which is all about speed. And, you know, he's really talking about speed and all the things that come with that as a characteristic of our modern, modern world, um, represented, of course, by the highway, um, but many other things. And, you know, he's obviously contrasting that with the 1800s, which is a time of slow, deliberate, um, you know, living, at least according to this novel. Um, and a lot of the cause of that increase in speed has to do with technological advancement. Um, of course, like the fast car, the ability to build highways and everything like that. And so that's really the framework. Um, and I think just one interesting thing here to mention is the fact that Albert Camus actually died in a highway um, or died in a car. And there's an interesting sentence right at the beginning there, I think I mentioned it, where, um, you know, he's talking about the, the recklessness of the French drivers. And I just wonder if that's a reference at all to Camus or not. Um, but the the main piece of the beginning of the book here with the highway is look at how much people are missing out on these key human pieces of interaction like something so simple like putting your hand on your wife's lap in the car um, as opposed to honking at the person in front of you because of speed we are taken away our attention is taken away from the little th things that might matter and towards these weird things that apparently matter so much, like the speed of the driver in front of you. And again, it's just very representative, I think, of our modern world um, and probably something that we're all waking up to more and more um, in this strange coronavirus time where we're forced to not live a life so informed by speed. And instead, we have to take back uh, a few moments in our lives and self-reflect and take our time and deliberate and meander and all of a sudden you realize how informed our lives are by this desire for increase of speed and quickness and whatever else you want to kind of put in as synonyms and so um, it's just interesting that uh, there's this great moment in the book where we start off in the highway the he's talking about the highway, and then he compares it to the 1800s story where, um, you know, the Marquis and the Madame T, they're, they're walking 
um, along the park and they just have some slow lovemaking and then they go for another walk and then they go to an underground chamber and it's just this slow, amazing night between these two people who love each other. And then in the real story, again, about halfway through where we read, the main character and his wife try and emulate the same thing. They arrive at this beautiful hotel in Paris. They go to their room. They get dressed. They try and go for a nice walk on the grass. And they get about halfway through their walk. And all of a sudden, they have to turn back because they've run into a highway. Um, Even when they have attempted to live in a kind of slowness and they're on vacation here, um, they cannot escape this obsession with speed that surrounds um, uh, that surrounds them this concrete form of it um, so this is the, I mean obviously now we know what what the hell the author is trying to get and portray to us he's talking about the way that we live our lives um, Kundera is talking about the way that we live our lives and how it's been sped up and informed so much by media and technology and media affects um, you know, the speed in which we live our lives, of course, but also affects the way that we behave, um, which we'll just get to this section that's pretty big on the dancer here, which Kundera um, describes his example of a dancer, and he does this via a conversation or the description of a conversation between Pontevin and Vincent. And what I love about Kundera, and it reminds me very much of Dostoevsky, although slightly different, is Dostoevsky, when you read his books, you get to read these great debates. This is not a, a work where it's just Dostoevsky himself writing his own opinions. Instead, he's writing a work of fiction, which two characters bring their strongest uh, uh, debates to the table. And so you read something like uh, Crime and Punishment, um, and or uh, the brothers Kramazov, and you read these discussions, um, like between the main character of Crime and Punishment, uh, Raskolnikov, and Periphery. And obviously Dostoevsky is the one writing this. He's the master behind it. But he's not coming down in some singular um, point of view argument. He's like, no, no, no these two characters are going to duke it out because... These ideas we're talking about are so complicated and they're so contradictory and there's no obviously right or wrong answer of what's the best thing here. So instead, something that's much more interesting is let's just have a really amazing debate in this fictional dramatic forum that is dialogue between characters. And and Dostoevsky's a master of this. I don't think Kundera does it nearly as well here, but he still does it, which I think is great in his own way, where he has two characters, Pontevin and then a Vincent, and they're having discussion about um, this role informed by modern media that is the person who's concerned so much with the image and the attention of others for the pure sake of Epicurean hedonism and the attention of others is no desire for power. It's not a political power move play. Um, this person is a, just a, a performer. Um, and that can lead to some really strange behaviors as we see here with the person... Um, kissing the AIDS patient in order to strategically time the camera shoot or flying off to different countries to be photographed with starving children. And it, it's obviously just highlighting the absurdity and the irony of these philanthropic plays that aren't really about the philanthropy but are about the image of providing philanthropy. And so, you know, you read it, but again, it's not like Kundera is just sitting there writing this like New York Times op-ed 
talking about how bad the dancer is, is no, what he's done here is he's given us two characters who are debating the, 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 the causes, the effects, um, the phenomena of the dancer, and they're highlighting both very good points and different sides. And like, again, it's just a dramatic forum for debate in front of us. Um, and that to me is so much more interesting to read uh, because, again, you're, you're just left with things are complicated. These are difficult situations. And, you know, modern media, for example, has done this to us. What can we do about that? What are the counter arguments? What do we deal with these strange phenomena of, you know, people looking philanthropic for cameras and not actually backing it up? Or what do we do with the fact that, you know, some people know that there is terrible things going on in the world and they're not doing anything about it? And, you know, why when we turn on our TV in the middle of the hotel room, are we seeing infomercials for African children? Like, um, what strange weird absurd things that we encounter in our day-to-day and they're not so different from um what we read in this book when we look at you know the the lives of us today and it's just interesting and i think the final thing here is that um you know if we want to think of a very ultimate form of the dancer someone who's just doing things for the public perception of people um, and for attention, and you know, probably in this case also for power, I think of Jean Clements from The Fall, our last section. Like, there's someone who's clearly, clearly this dancer type who will go even as far as being a dancer when no one's watching. He doesn't even need the modern media to be there. He'll go and help a blind person cross the street and then tip his hat at him. Um, that is a total dancer move, and there's not even a camera there. So... He is the kind of epitome of this. Um, but at a more micro sense, the dancer is also, as Kundera says here, or as Pontevin says, someone who's merely taking their ideas and sending them out to the world. Um, actually, this is what Pontevin argues against, where he's like, no, 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 like the professor, the PhD, doesn't actually want to have his ideas heard because it runs the risk of influencing someone else. And then he is seen as someone who's trying to create change in the world. And That's not even what he's trying to do. He's just exploring these ideas for his own, again, Epicurean pleasure. Um, And again, it's not like that's right or wrong either. It's not that Kundera is saying that merely exploring ideas for hedonist purposes is the right or wrong thing to do. It's just here are the consequences of it. And here is also the other side of it, which is just entirely publicly talking about your views and sharing them with everyone. Um. So it's just funny because here I am recording a podcast. And in a way, I feel like I'm so much more of a Pontevant in this case where I'm not really trying to convince anyone of anything that I believe. I'm not really trying to have some sort of political play. I'm not, I have no activism. Like, even though, you know, my actual views may or may not be like in line with, you know, let's say very left wing politics. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm creating, for example, this podcast to to start ranting about them. I just want to sit here and explore some ideas for their own sake. And maybe I'm a little bit more like a Pontevin in that sense. But at the same time, you know, this podcast gets people who listen to it. I have a small bit of an audience and, you know, I am actually going out of my way to share it with people in the way that Pontevin is not. So I also have a little bit of the dancer in me by even just engaging in this and 
I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. It's just this is one of these things that the book really makes you think about. It's not right or wrong. There is just this conflicting tension between uh, these two things. And so here's all the great reasons I love this book, and hopefully we're going to get into more and more of it. One is Kundera's ability to really duke out some complex but relatable modern modern ideas um, in front of us via these characters. Two, he really gets us to wake up and re-examine um, the concept of slowing down our lives and actually seeing what's left when we remove ourselves from the quote-unquote highway culture of the modern world and look at what's left. And he's going to do this through his own musings, through his main character, and also through these flashbacks to the 1800s where there was no such modern technology. So I love that he makes us think about that. Um, and the the final thing that I really love here is that it's very timely in a way that when I was doing the fall, it wasn't. But I think that reading this, even for myself, uh, is a great time where we're, we're in the midst of all doing this together. And so to see this book that came out um, however long ago, a few decades ago, um, you know, like this is someone who's been thinking about this for a long time. He didn't need a coronavirus to to make him stop and smell the flowers and live a more slow life. And, you know, if it's anything also, like I read this book, I think when I was in college and this really struck, stuck with me as well. And though I fail at it sometimes, I also carry this book very deeply in my heart when it comes to my own thoughts about quote unquote slowness, slowness and removing myself from this fast paced highway culture, um, which, you know, I've never particularly wanted to be a part of. That's why I'm sitting here podcasting by myself, if that's any proof. Um, and the final reason why I love this book, uh, the final, final reason is that, uh, you know, my university degree is in um, studying media theory and critical theory and media and technology and the intersection of our lives when, you know, human life comes interaction with, into interaction with different forms of technology and modern media and the way that we communicate with each other in these types of forms and this book is just a great great uh, example of fictional examination of these issues how do you take a look at the way that our modern media culture influences people's behavior when they're on camera there's not a lot of books that i know of that explore this concept in such an awesome detail and also was so ahead of its time um so 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 ahead of its time uh so i want to give it so much credit for that too um, so yeah, I, I think this is great. This is the first episode of the second book of Let's Read. Uh, it's almost impossible to kind of chop th- these up. Like, what do I call it? Do I call it Let's Read 2? Do I call it Let's Read 7? Um, we'll see what the episode title ends up being. But uh, otherwise, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, it's been, again, a ton of fun recording this. Hopefully this series is going to be even better than the last one. So yeah, that's it for me. Thank you, everyone. Um, You guys are fucking awesome. I'll talk to you in the next one.